Welcome to this UCL lunch hour lecture on can good sleep help our brain as we age? My name is Josh King-Robson and I'm a clinical research fellow at the UCL Dementia Research Centre and I'll be chairing today's lecture. It's my honour and pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr Victoria Garfield. Dr Garfield is a senior research fellow in genetic epidemiology at the MRC Unit for Lifelong Health and Ageing based at the Institute of Cardiovascular Science. She has a background in psychology, statistics, and a PhD in genetic epidemiology. Victoria's research has focused on sleep epidemiology for the last 10 years, which includes an understanding of whether poor sleep might cause health problems as we get older. A particular interest in this area is dementia and whether changing our sleep habits could help present neurodegenerative disease. Victoria also has another stream of research which focuses on understanding why people with diabetes or high blood pressure are more likely to be diagnosed with dementia. Before we begin, I'd like to let you know that we will have some time at the end of the lecture for questions, and these can be submitted at any time during Victoria's talk by going to sly.do, which can be entered into your internet browser by entering the code and entering the event code hashtag brain. I'll now hand over to Victoria for their talk. <clears throat> <clears throat> Thank you very much, uh, Josh, for that lovely introduction. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. And today I'm going to speak to you a little bit about sleep and whether sleep uh, can help our brains as we get older. So <clears throat> the aim of today's lecture is to try to persuade you all that good sleep is essential for our brains as we age. Firstly, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about some other important facts about poor sleep. So Poor sleep has some important risk factors, which you may or may not know about. These come in the form of smoking. So smoking is, is a risk factor for, for poor quality sleep or having insufficient sleep or, or too much sleep. Alcohol consumption affects our brains, as, as we know, and this does affect our sleep quite drastically. And uh, being sedentary and or being physically inactive is also a very strong risk factor for poor sleep. Now we're going to look at the other direction um, and what might happen in terms of our health and negative health consequences when we have poor sleep. So one thing is um, we have a higher risk of heart disease. We have an increased risk of type 2 diabetes, in particular in, in middle age, a higher risk of uh, high blood pressure and an increased risk of becoming overweight uh, or obese. So this um, these negative health consequences, we know they're quite well established from decades, two to three decades of epidemiological or health research um, in very, very large samples in the population, both from the UK, Europe, the States and, and all over the world. So these are quite well established things. <clears throat> so despite all of this, sleep has been um, largely ignored. Um, but there is there is hope. Um, so in, in 2020, the Lancet Commission on, on Dementia added sleep to its important risk factors for, for dementia, particularly Alzheimer's disease, which, as you might know, is the most common form of dementia in, in the population. Um, if you're interested in understanding a bit more about the Lancet Commission, uh, there is a lay summary provided by uh, the Alzheimer's Society uh, charity website. Another thing that gives us a bit of hope is that there's been more stuff and more interest on sleep in the media in recent years. And this includes our own research. We've had uh, about three to four studies in the media in the last few years that have gained a lot of attention. And there are also a couple of really nice sleep podcasts out there, which are really nice because they do explain why sleep is so important. 
um, in terms that are, are sort of more easy to understand. So they dissect the research in, in, in some more simple terms. Another thing that just, which has happened in the last sort of five to 10 years more so is an increase into genetic research uh, of sleep. So we're beginning to understand a lot more about the genetic basis of sleep um, and why, why it's, it might be important. So just to um, talk briefly about some basic sleep terms and concepts, um, one thing that I'll be focusing on quite a lot in this, in this lecture is sleep duration. And the reason for that is that sleep duration is very, very easy to measure. So as you, as you might imagine, measuring sleep is quite difficult. Um, so we largely ask people to self-report their sleep because that's a cheap and easy option. There are other ways, as you might know, of measuring sleep. So bringing people into a sleep lab and hooking them up um, and monitoring them overnight. And there are also things like um, we, some of you might have a watch that measures your sleep and there are wrist worn, uh, sorry, waist worn accelerometers that also measure sleep. Um, but sleep duration is one of the most popular things that, that we look at. Um, and this simply refers to the number of hours slept per night is also known as total sleep time or TST. Another important concept is sleep timing or chronotype. And this refers to somebody's sleep schedule. You might have heard of the morning lark versus evening owl distinction. Um, and this, you know, you, you might know people who will say to you, I'm more of a morning person. I like to get up early, you know, I spring into action at six, six, seven a.m. I have friends who, you know, they're up walking the dog by four or five a.m. Um, or some people who might say to you, actually, I'm more productive at night and I like to stay up late and, and, and work in the evening. Uh, sleep quality is really, really important. And it usually uh, refers to when people self-report how satisfied they are with their sleep. And to measure this in research, we use validated um, standardized questionnaires where we ask people lots of different things to build a picture of, of how well they sleep. And then we would have a, a sort of rating, a sort of score um, of whether they sleep, you know, they have poor, put from poor sleep to very good sleep. Another important thing is uh, sleep stages, just, just to be aware of, there are four stages of sleep and we pass through these sequentially throughout, throughout the night. So why is sleep so important? So sleep is absolutely crucial for our physical and mental health, our cognitive function, which I'll talk about quite a lot here because I'm talking about the brain and that refers to our thinking skills and I'll elaborate a little bit more on that further. <clears throat> Quality of life and also just general well-being. <clears throat> so sleep, like eating and breathing, is a necessity for human beings and it's not an option. So we know that when, <clears throat> when we don't sleep, um, we don't function, the average human being doesn't function as well on, on little or no sleep. Um, and if any of you are shift workers or you, you are parents, um, you, you, you probably have experienced this. Or, for example, when we have jet lag and we haven't slept on a plane or we haven't slept well. So it, it really is a, a necessity. Uh, and it's required usually on a daily basis to ensure that one occurs. So to ensure that we maintain our physical and mental health and cognition as much as possible. So just some uh, interesting, important facts about sleep that you may or may not know. So human beings spend an average of about 30% uh, of their lives asleep. Sleep decreases as a function of age. Lots of us will know an older adult who sleeps between five to six hours. And this can be um, due to daytime naps, which, um, you know, my granddad, he, he would always 
fall asleep after uh, in his chair after having his lunch. So this is a really common thing and um, that changes as, as we get older. And sleep deprivation, um, which is obviously not good for us at all, and a flawed reactor design played a really important role in the human error that led to the Chernobyl disaster. So you may or may not um, have known that already. So just thinking a little bit about how long the average adult sleeps for. So over here on the left, we have uh, a normal distribution curve, a, a bell-shaped curve, and this shows roughly that adults in the population sleep for about seven and a half hours on average. We'll all have slightly different um, uh, sleep times, and that's why there's a standard deviation, so either side of this curve of one about 1.25 hours, so one and a quarter hours. So, you, you know, you might be thinking, oh, I only sleep for six hours or someone else might be thinking, oh, I sleep for 10, 10 or 11 hours sometimes. Um, and that is just sometimes part part of, you know, life and, and part of um, just needing to, to sleep longer sometimes or needing to wake up early sometimes and, and sleep for less. This graph on the left shows what I talked about in the slide before, which the, um, indicates that as we get older, um, we sleep for, for fewer hours uh, up until um, uh, death. So we spend more time awake. This, this represents babies who spend more time asleep. And this represents that we spend more time awake as we get older. Um, as per the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, we should be aiming, so adults should be aiming to sleep for between seven to nine hours uh, a night, roughly. And it is important to... Um, try to sleep for that amount of time every night of the week. I know that obviously life sometimes prevents us from, from doing that. And there's it's a it's very, very common. Uh, we all talk about, you know, having a lion at the weekend, uh, perhaps, uh, or when we're when we're off work, um, to, to compensate and, and make up, make up for that. Um, and that's not necessarily a good thing to do, but it's also a cultural and, and societal thing that that is sometimes uh, unavoidable. So <clears throat> I'm now going to talk about sleep and cognitive function and brain health. So cognitive function refers to our thinking skills. And in that sense, it refers to things like memory. So it could be, uh, you know, your short term, long term memory, uh, thinking a little bit about the different types of memory, for example, visual memory. Um, so, for example, if you're shown something on a, on a screen and then it disappears, how well you can remember that. Uh, you know, how, how correctly you can remember that and things like processing speed or, or reaction time as well. And we need reaction times, for example, when we're driving. Um, and these are all things that naturally decline as we as we get older. And we, we refer to this as as cognitive decline. But there are things we can do to um, to slow down um, the uh, the decline. <clears throat> And here, brain health uh, specifically refers to our physical brain and its structure and function as, as we get older. This is typically measured using um, magnetic resonance imaging or MRI scans. So, um, you know, it's quite common to, to have an MRI scan of different part, parts of the body. Um, and it's a way to understand what's actually happening to the brain physically as, as we get older. And there are certain parts of the brain that... Um, shrink more rapidly in individuals who are more likely to have a diagnosis of dementia or have a diagnosis of dementia, for example. So it's a it's a really objective, um, important way to to understand what's happening to to our brain as as we get older. 
<clears throat> so <clears throat> overall, what, what does the evidence tell us? Is that's what we care about here. We care about talking about research and, and, and what the evidence says. So we know from uh, a few decades of research <clears throat> that poor sleep quality is linked to impaired cognitive function. So to it's linked to worse thinking skills. Uh, and that can be in the form of processing speed, memory, spatial awareness, lots of different aspects that make up our cognitive function and, and thinking skills. So this would have been measured through one of those scales that I talked about earlier, where people self-report um, how good their sleep is. And the types of questions that people are asked in those in those questionnaires are things like um, whether you uh, have a partner that you share the bed with, so a, a bed partner, because uh, that can obviously disrupt our sleep, whether you snore, whether you sleep with somebody who snores, um, what it's like in the environment that you that you sleep in, um, whether it's loud outside, um, whether you wake up feeling tired, whether you wake up and you don't feel well rested, you wake up too early. So the, all these sorts of questions are asked to, to build a picture of, uh, of people's sleep quality. <clears throat> so thinking a little bit about the extremes of sleep duration, uh, of that total nighttime sleep that I talked about, um, here we talk about the extremes as being too short or too long. And generally that's referred to individuals who sleep for less than six to seven hours uh, for the short extreme and people who sleep for more than nine hours, that would be uh, classed as quite long sleep. And this is something that it's important to remember that um, we're not we're not here to, to, to scare anybody. So, you know, a lot of people could be thinking, well, you know, last week I slept for 10 hours, you know, two days in a row, but I was really tired and I had X, Y, and Z going on in, in my life. And all these things are, are accumulative over many, many, many years. So it's not to say that if you do these things occasionally that um, your brain will be very, very badly affected. It, it's to say that if you do them very, very often, um, you could be increasing risk of worse thinking skills or risk of, of Alzheimer's disease. But I'll talk a bit more about um, in the in a bid to, to like I say to not to not scare people. I'll talk a bit more about other things that that are also important to, to keep our brains healthy. So this is all well and good, um, but how can we be sure that poor sleep actually causes worse thinking skills or cognitive function or increased risk of Alzheimer's disease? Could it also be in the opposite direction that having Alzheimer's disease might cause poor sleep or it could be both? And that's what we refer to as a bi-directional um, relationship. So important, an important thing to, to think about, which I also like, always like to mention, is that you may have heard this um, when you, you've read about research in the media, that correlation or association does not mean causation. So what does this mean? So finding a correlation or an association, it's the same thing, um, between sleep duration and cognitive function does not automatically mean that poor sleep duration itself causes the worst cognitive function or vice versa. So I'll explain this with um, an example. So this is a classic sort of um, graphic that we would use in, in health research or epidemiology research to try to figure out what, what might be going on uh, and what pathways uh, are, are affected and what might cause something else. So it's a really complex um, sort of picture and thing, thing to figure out. And we're not the only people in sleep epidemiology who deal with this. 
So what you can see here on the left is sleep duration. And then I've put two arrows in either direction for cognitive function or thinking skills, because like I said, it could be that it works in, in both directions. Now, if we ignore this box up here for a second and you conduct a study and you say, uh, and, you, and you, you measure sleep duration, perhaps by asking people how many hours they sleep per night on average, and then you uh, do um, a standardized cognitive battery, uh, cognitive test, um, to understand how how good people's cognitive function is, and you find a correlation between the two in that direction. Um, you might you will potentially conclude that sleep duration is the culprit here. So sleep duration is the underlying uh, causal culprit for uh, worse cognitive function. If you do the test in the opposite direction, uh, you might conclude the same thing. That worse cognitive function. Uh, could lead to uh, worse sleep duration. However, um, that could be a mistake. And when we do health research, we need to consider that there could be a third factor and often a long list of third factors that could be um, involved in this relationship. So smoking, um, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, smoking is something that affects um, pretty much all, all of our organs. It's, it's, it, as we all know, it's not good for you. And in this case, um, sleep duration and cognitive function are no exception. So smoking affects your sleep and smoking affects your cognitive function. So it could be that you find a relationship or a correlation between sleep duration and cognitive function due to an underlying common cause. So that the underlying causal culprit is actually smoking, which is causing both of these problems. Now, you might be thinking, OK, but it could be something else. Absolutely. It could be alcohol consumption. It could be being physically inactive. It could be if you have um, comorbidities like diabetes, high blood pressure, all those things which are really common, high cholesterol, re really common in, in, in middle age. Um, so this is really important to, to, to think about. And we spend a huge amount of time trying to figure out what might cause what and how we might begin to, to understand that. Because as you can imagine, if we're going to recommend um, things for clinical practice, for, for you know, or policy changes um, for the NHS, then we need to meet, be sure of what, what we're recommending. So in the last decade, advances have allowed us to understand whether poor sleep in fact causes worse cognitive function uh, or dementia or vice versa. I'm going to focus on this direction of poor sleep uh, causing worse cognitive function um, and not, not the other direction at the moment. Uh, so this is all well and good, but what have we contributed to the field? So we've um, we published three studies, two of which are fully published and one which has uh, received, um, and sorry, both of which have received substantial media coverage, one which came out this year, which I'll talk about as well. Um, the other study is in a in a form which we call preprint, um, which means it has not been fully peer reviewed yet, but we are hoping to publish that very soon. So I'll talk uh, a little bit about the first study. So um, back in uh, 2019, uh, we had a brilliant uh, master student, uh, uh, Dr. Albert Henry, who has now uh, just finished his, his PhD actually at UCL. Um, and we decided that um, we wanted to try to understand whether extreme sleep duration, so at the short and long ends of the, of the spectrum, might cause 
worst cognitive functions or worse thinking skills. Um, and to do that, Albert carried out this um, brilliant study for his master's project, for his, his dissertation, um, and we published it in uh, in one of these um, in in one of the best journals for epidemiology. So what we did here, <clears throat> um, so what we wanted to understand is um, whether short sleep might cause poorer thinking skills, and whether long sleep also might cause poorer thinking skills. Um, and one of the reasons to focus, you, you know, you might be thinking, well, we've heard a lot, you know, for, for many, many, many years about sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation, as, as we know, is not is not good for us. Um, but we now know that there is a relationship that we refer to in statistics as a U-shaped relationship, which means that um, either ends, either, either extreme, are not good for us. So um, why we were able to look at uh, long sleep in this context is because we used a very, very large sample. You may have heard of it. It's called the UK Biobank Study. Um, and the UK Biobank Study has half a million people from the UK um, who have uh, volunteered to, to take part. And it started uh, between 2006 and 2010. And we're following them up to try to understand the aging process with uh, with a lot of detail. So um, these individuals were aged 40 to 69 at, at the recruitment phase. And uh, obviously now they are they are older. So we have a lot of information from them, including their, their cognition and, and thinking skills. And, and we know about their sleep. We have uh, blood where we've taken DNA. Um, we are able to link to their NHS records. So we really have a, a, a real breadth of data um, thanks to these uh, amazing participants. Um, and so the reason that we're able to also look at long sleep for the first time in this context is because we actually have enough people in that group who sleep for more than uh, more than nine hours. So I just want to tell you to tell you a little bit about the uh, cognitive tasks that, that we looked at in case they're of interest. You might be wondering you know, how, how you how you measure these things in research. So one of the things we wanted to measure was um, visual memory. And we have this measure of visual memory in all of the half million UK Biobank uh, participants. And what they what they were shown was um, this sort of screen. And they had um, pairs of cards, which they were shown and then disappeared. And then they had to remember where each pair of cards would uh, had appeared on the screen. So um, what was then measured was the number of errors that they made in matching the pairs of cards. That means that a higher value, um, a little bit counterintuitive, means that they have a poorer visual memory. Then we had um, a reaction time task, fairly self-explanatory. They just had to push the button. Um, so it's a game of snap and it's the time taken to press the button when the cards are the same and, and they want to um, say snap. So again, a higher value means a slower reaction time, which means a, a, a poorer reaction time. So what did we find in this study? So um, we found, so our mean or average sleep in, in this sample was about 7.2 hours, so, so seven-ish hours. Um, so most people, uh, the UK Biobank participants at this point were aged uh, about 54 years old and they slept for just over seven hours. Um, so compared to this group, compared to the, the reference group, as we call it, individuals who slept for less than seven hours a day had a somewhat poorer visual memory performance. So they made more errors on the 
matching the cards. And then individuals at the other end of the spectrum who slept for more than nine hours a day um, also had a poorer visual memory as compared to this group. We also found that people in the both of those extreme um, ends of, of the spectrum of sleep duration also had a somewhat slower processing speed and, and reaction time for the uh, game of Snap. So I, I always like to, to talk about this and, you know, does, does this matter? Is, is this important? And we would say, yes, absolutely. Um, we as sleep researchers and epidemiologists, um, we, we want to convince people that sleep should be paid uh, more attention to. Uh, particularly in clinical practice. We know that it's extremely difficult at the moment with the way that you know things are working in the NHS. Obviously, you can't bring people in and ask everybody about, about their sleep, but we do really want to, to try to push um, to, to, to bring this into clinical practice because it's not something that's paid attention to at all. And, it's, and the important thing about sleep is that it's a modifiable behavior. We, um, it's, it's also important because improving sleep habits could represent a therapeutic target for better cognitive function, be better thinking skills. So this means that, um, you know, we, we, we're using therapeutic fairly loosely here. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, drugs or medications. It could be, it could be that, that um, you know, this is, with, with medications, we could in, improve cognition if we improve sleep, or it could be uh, something a bit more, um, natural, um, if, if people want to, to, to try that, you know, therapeutic could, could mean non-medical, uh, non-pharmaceutical. Non um, we also think from our study that more attention should be paid to long sleep and not only uh, short sleep duration, uh, because this is something that's, that's quite new. And we've shown that this could be a causal uh, relationship, a causal correlation, which is quite important. Um, so this is some of the media coverage that we had back in 2019 um, for uh, for this this study uh, led led by Albert. So now I'm going to talk about a second study, which is a, a little bit uh, different, but it, but it also relates to to sleep and the brain. So um, this study was on daytime napping and cognitive function, so thinking skills and brain size, and it was led by um, brilliant PhD student Valentina Pass. Um, who's based in uh, Uruguay, but uh, works with us at, at UCL as well, um, and with our excellent collaborator, um, Dr. Hassan Dashti from uh, Harvard University. And what we wanted to understand here was whether taking a daytime nap might cause better cognitive function, might cause us to have better thinking skills. Um, and the thinking skills or cognitive function measures would be the same ones that we used in the previous study. So the, the, the matching of the card pairs um, to, to measure uh, visual memory and the snap game to measure reaction time or processing speed. So we use the same uh, data set, the same, roughly the same people. We use the UK Biobank study. Again, we needed a very large sample. Um, so those two measures are, are the same. Additionally, what we did for the first time was to, um, because the UK Biobank participants have undergone whole body uh, MRI, um, we have uh, scans of their brain that have been segmented and processed by some very clever colleagues. Um, and we are able to understand the size of the whole brain and the size of each brain structure. 
uh, which is really important. And there are certain brain structures that are um, that shrink more rapidly uh, in people who are more likely to, to have dementia. For example, the hippocampus, which is uh, greatly involved in learning and memory. Um, but the measure of the whole brain, which we call total brain volume, and we measure that in cubic centimeters, um, that's a really important way to also determine how rapidly our, our, our brain is aging in, in a quite a straightforward way. So we were looking at all of this in this study. The rationale or, or the idea that I had for this part of the study uh, to do with thinking skills came from some really interesting experiments done by um, a lab in the States led by a professor called Sarah Mednick. Um, and she's she's found using experimental approaches that essentially napping could be causally linked to better thinking skills. And they recommend napping for up to you know one to two hours a day could, could be helping with that. I'll talk a bit about that later though. Um, and then we additionally, have the data from 35 to 40,000 individuals who, who have a, an MRI scan. So what did we find? <clears throat> so we found our, our main finding was that taking a daytime nap regularly, and this, this refers to people who responded that they are frequent daytime nappers, so we refer to them as habitual nappers, um, appears that it could certainly help preserve the size of our brains as we age. Now, this does not mean that um, having a nap can change our brain. It can't increase the size of our brain. But the individuals who have uh, a regular daytime nap had a larger brain size, as opposed to the individuals who um, who are less likely to nap. So we, but we did not find an effect of daytime napping on thinking skills or cognitive function. Um, so um, it's possible that. Our study looked at slightly different aspects of cognitive function compared to the studies from the States. So that's something that we um, we were not able to replicate, but we need to think a bit more about for, uh, for future work. So does this matter? Absolutely. Um, so reduced brain size is linked to higher stress levels as measured with, uh, by cortisol, greater risk of earlier mortality and risk of sleep apnea, um, which is a sleep a sleep disordered breathing, um, which is quite common in uh, in in midlife, particularly in in males who are uh, overweight or obese, um, and and other things as well. And reduced brain size, importantly, is linked to um, greater risk of dementia. So, if we want to try to preserve our brain size for as long as possible, uh, and a daytime nap is is a potential way to do that, then why why not give it a try? We all at least all of those who are of working age, um, we could do with you know taking a break in the day and, and doing something that might might help our, our brain health. Um, also importantly, taking a nap uh, can help compensate for short or long or poor poor sleep at night, but it's not meant to replace nighttime sleep. We still need to be sleeping at night um, to to replenish our brain cells and feel rested in the in the morning and, and tackle the, the, the next day. So that's not what we're, we're recommending here at all. Um, so this study um, essentially went viral. Uh, I think we were even on TikTok, um, Instagram, all, all sorts of places. Um, Have I Got News For You uh, did a, a tweet about the study. Um, we were on BBC Radio, lots of places, lots of interest in this study. and. I think 
one of the reasons, uh, especially when I spoke to people on the radio very early in the morning, you know, five o'clock onwards, was that, um, you know, these people would say to me, oh, I, we nap because, you know, we, we get up early to, to work, um, but we didn't know that it, it might be a positive thing. Um, so one thing about this study that was really nice was that we were coming to the public with a positive message rather than a, you know, if you do this, then you'll get this illness or if you don't do this, you'll get this illness, which unfortunately is is often what we find when we're doing medical research and, and we need to tell people obviously what we find whether it's good or bad but it was really nice to have something positive and to say well maybe taking a break in the day and having a nap could could be a good thing for for your brain as, as you get older so what other research are we doing in this area of sleep and cognitive functional sleep and thinking skills so um, thanks to a grant from the UCL uh, uh, Global Engagement Office, um, I have a project with some brilliant collaborators over at the All Institute, uh, All Indian Institute Medical uh, Sciences Institute in New Delhi, um, which has been going on now for a couple of years. And this project is around understanding sleep quality and cognitive function and brain health using uh, MRI scans in Indians residing in India specifically in New Delhi, um, compared with Indians residing in the UK. And we're able to do this because um, my absolutely brilliant collaborators over there, who I'll show you in a second, um, are collecting data from um, individuals over, over in New Delhi, measuring their uh, sleep quality with a questionnaire and some other measurements as well that are a bit more objective, so using some devices, they're administering a cognitive test as well, and they're um, scanning their brains in, in the MRI scanner. And over here in the UK, um, my, my boss um, set up a, uh, a study many years ago, which is a triethnic study, and we're able to use the um, Indian Asian portion of the study to compare with um, individuals residing over in India. So, why would we want to do this? Well, it's possible that the relationship or the correlation between sleep quality and cognitive function or, or brain size uh, might be different between these two groups. Um, so we know that there are differences in, in effects and, and correlations across ethnicities sometimes. So, for example, um, uh, individuals of South Asian descent are more likely to have, um, that they're at greater risk of diabetes, for example. We don't understand all the underlying etiology of that um, at the moment, but we know that this, this is the fact. Um, and it's, it is possible that um, there's also differences between individuals who have migrated over to the UK you know, many, many years ago um, and have had their children here, because compared to the sort of original population, the original host population, based over in India. Uh, and this could be due to cultural adaptations, it could be due to diet, because it won't be due to genetics, because their genetics will be very, very um, similar. So this is something that we 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 think is really, really important, um, particularly because the um, prevalence of dementia is increasing in India as well, uh, quite rapidly. So it's not something that we just need to be concerned with uh, over here in, in the West. Um, and this is the the, the team. Um, I, I visited them uh, in May this year. It was very, very hot, um, but it was a, a brilliant, uh, fantastic experience. Uh, we spent most of the time uh, eating 
uh, amazing food. And of, of course, we were able to process some data. Um, and uh, I met a lot of people from the from the department. So, yeah, really, really amazing um, uh, experience. So um, some really important things to uh, to think about um, that I'd like, I'd like to mention as uh, as we come towards the end is that all research studies have shortcomings uh, and, and these studies are no exception. So all scientific studies have, have limitations and issues and no science is done perfectly. Um, we do the best that we can with the data that we have available or with the data that we're able to collect from people and bearing in mind that sometimes we're bringing people into clinic and doing even quite invasive measures on them to really understand what, what's going on in different different parts of, of, of the body, different organs, different tissues. Um, so, so it's important to, to remember that, that no research is, is perfect. The specific method that we use, and, and I mentioned um, earlier on that, you know, has become available in the last decade or so, um, is thanks to the advent of uh, genetics and genetic epidemiology. So essentially, um, uh, my job that I do now was not a job uh, 20, 30 years ago. So it's all to do with the advent of the Human Genome Project um, and genetics and genetic epidemiology coming really, really far. Um, and the method that we use is, is because we have access to DNA. Um, however, it's not the only method available to understand whether one thing causes another. And lots of, lots of our brilliant colleagues use other methods um, which use mathematical modeling, which are just as good um, or perhaps even uh, superior sometimes, depending on what, what question you're asking. Really importantly, as I've mentioned earlier, we rely on volunteers from the population as we need very large samples to carry out these studies. Um, and we are very grateful that, that people continue to volunteer for, for our studies. We have data from thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of people and, and up to up to millions sometimes. And, uh, often we're asking for people to consent to us also being able to access their um, NHS records to really understand and build a picture of what's going on as, as people age in the population. Another important thing is that everything I've presented here today is the result of the team effort. Um, research is always collaborative uh, and we need people with different expertise. So everything that, that, that I've presented here is, is um, due to a, a huge team effort in the background. And, you know, we only present um, a snippet, but it's years of work that, that goes on in the background. And obviously you might see something in the media that's written up in a short article, but it is years of, of, of work and, and effort and coding and think things going wrong and, and, and fixing them in the background. So just to summarize, or, or maybe what, what the bottom line is here, is that good quality and sufficient sleep is crucial for our brains as we get older, crucial to preserve the, the health of our brains, so the physicality of our brains, uh, but also our thinking skills as we get older. And um, equally, good and sufficient sleep uh, could also help reduce the risk of multiple common diseases, such as diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, obesity, et cetera. So good sleep is, is very, very important. Um, and I just wanted to end with um, a few tips. You may already know these um, if, you're, if you're struggling with, with your sleep. So we now know 
that recommending sleeping for longer isn't necessarily ideal. Um, so you might have bad quality sleep, but you might sleep for 10 hours. So I wouldn't we wouldn't recommend that staying in bed and sleeping for longer is necessarily ideal in that situation. We should be aiming to sleep for between seven to nine hours um, and try to note the time that you get into bed versus the time you actually fall asleep, because that's different. Um, and the time that that you fall asleep um, is, is what you want to sort of document. Um, and then you could document the time that you that you wake up as well. Um, if you'd like to nap based on our new findings um, that we're, we're quite confident in, um, keep it to a maximum of 30 minutes if you can. And the reason for that is to ensure that you don't fall into the next stage of sleep, which, which is known as deep sleep, because that's when people report that they wake up feeling worse, you know, feeling groggy. Um, so to not fall into that and then almost make your day worse, we would recommend not napping for more than about 30 minutes. Uh, regular exercise is, is fantastic to help you sleep, but not too close to bedtime. So no more than about two hours. Um, so leave about two hours between that and, and going to bed. We all know this, avoiding caffeine about three hours before bed. It does keep us awake. It, it, it is scientific. Um, and you could keep a sleep diary for a week or two, or if you like, and, and you can afford it, you could get a smartwatch to, to track your sleep and that could help you make some changes in your in your in your sleep schedule. Of course, if these don't things, if these things above don't work, speak to your GP um, and you might consider other other options, other interventions. But I would try some of the above um, first if um if you're able to. Um, so this is just to highlight again you know the the team effort and here you can see some universities from all over the world that I work with and, and I've worked with for a long time now um so all of these efforts are, are global and, and collaborative um and that's all thank you thank you very much for attending and uh, I hope that everybody is uh, still awake and uh, I think we have time to take some questions Thank you, Dr. Garfield, for a really excellent talk. We've got quite a few questions already appearing in the Slido, but if you do have any questions, you can submit them now with the hashtag, uh, hashtag brain. Um, if I may open the questions, I, I was sort of interested in your really interesting findings on napping. Um, and as someone who struggles to nap, am I genetically doomed to have a smaller brain? And, and will, will sleeping forcing myself to nap um, help with that? Or do you think it's more the people who are genetic nappers who will benefit? Yeah, so it's a really good question. Thank, thank you for that. Um, so, you know, we, we know that the, the genetic basis of napping is is something that we're beginning to uncover. And of course, if you are one of the people who is more genetically predisposed to be a frequent napper, you might find it a little bit easier. Um, however, I wouldn't say that necessarily forcing yourself to nap is the answer, because as um as discussed in the lecture, there are lots of other things to be doing to build a healthy kind of profile as we get older. Um, so if you're not able to nap and it's something that you you know you, you don't want to force yourself to do, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily do that. And perhaps take 30 minutes uh, of your day doing something that will help you when you find easier. And that could be going for a walk or doing a bit of gardening or going for a run um, or a swim or just taking some time to do some housework, you know, anything that can help de-stress you personally um, for, for maybe up to about 30 minutes should, uh, you'll still be reducing 
the risk um, of all those horrible uh, diseases that I was harping on about. Thank you. Um, there's a few other questions here. So someone's asked, how can someone such as a student who's become nocturnal best shift their sleeping times and should they be doing that? Very good question. So so, so I talked a little bit about uh, chronotype and sleep timing. Um, and there is a there is a somewhat genetic basis to this as well. However, um, that's not deterministic. Um, and the genetic basis is quite small. So um, like I also mentioned, sleep is a modifiable, like, you know, it's a lifestyle behavior um, and, and it, it is modifiable. So it all depends on the individual. If you are able to do more things throughout the night and you, you know, you're more, more of an owl, but you're able to function well in the day and be productive, um, then that's not necessarily an issue. I suppose it could become an issue when you shift from that student uh, lifestyle to perhaps a full-time nine to five type job um and in that case i would maybe try some of the things that i put on the last slide so maybe try keeping a sleep diary maybe try looking at how long you sleep for what are the sort of times that you're more alert um caffeine if you're consuming lots of caffeine throughout the night that won't be helping so i think it, it's something to to consider but more so maybe as you shift from that that student lifestyle. Um, I, I did that when I was a student as well, um, and found it quite difficult when I when I sort of went into, you know, employment and had to get up at six o'clock. But the body uh, is very resilient and 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 adaptable, and so is is the brain. Um, and the younger you do it, the easier because the brain is is more plastic as well. Great, thank you. Um... You, you showed, there's another question here, you showed quite a range of sleep times amongst the normal population. Why do you think some people need to sleep more than others? It's a good question. Um, it, it It's likely to be very, you know, partly genetic, very, very small. We know that sleep duration um, is not massively genetically determined uh, and, and sleep timing uh, is a little bit more, genetically determined, but um, it's very likely that that depends on the individual and their lifestyle. So it could be that, you know, if you're quite going through quite a stressful period, you know, cortisol levels are raised, for example, you're not able to exercise as much or get outside as much um, or do things that you enjoy as much, then maybe you're compensating with that by sleeping for longer, um, you know, we we go through phases in life which are more difficult and more stressful and, and other things, life events have a real impact on, you know, on the brain. For example, a, a bereavement has a very real physical impact on the brain. And that's been seen in, in MRI scans as well. So I think it's um, it's just the nature of, you know, of, of human beings. And I, like I said, I think it's really important to remember that all these things they're small effects over time that we've shown. They're cumulative, but I wouldn't panic if it's something that is happening for a you know for a short short period of time. I think being aware of our sleep is what we're trying to get the message out. Just be aware and pay attention to it, rather than you know oh it doesn't matter. I sleep for three hours. Um, there's a few few more questions about napping here. So there's. Potentially, people are sometimes given advice that napping in the day can reduce their chance of having a good night's sleep. Did you did you look at that, and was that something that you think is correct? 
Uh, no, we we have not looked at that. Um, we in in that particular study, we only looked at daytime napping as a as a potential cause for um, improved, you know, cognitive function or, or or preserving brain size. So it would be a case of designing a slightly more complex study where we would look at uh, basically individuals who who nap what their sleep duration at night looks like uh, and then their brains as well so the brain size and and their thinking skills um so it's not something that we that we know i think it it is a difficult one uh, and that's why we're recommending you know i i had a, a colleague in the office who used to sleep for 10 minutes and she was you know bright as a button and, and that worked for her so i think i think if you want to nap I don't necessarily see that as a problem, depending on your the rest of your health profile and your lifestyle, etc. Um, it's also important about the timing of day, the, the time of day for the nap. And this is something we've been asked a lot. So one reason, one way for it to not eat into your sleep time at night and make sure that you're still tired at night is to nap in the kind of post-lunch phase. So perhaps, um, you know, have something to eat, something light to eat, um, and then maybe have a nap for up to 30 minutes. And that shouldn't really eat into your into your sleep time at night because it's that's not what we're looking for. And that's why we're saying don't take a very long nap of one to two hours because you won't it will potentially eat into that and then it might make you more stressed anyway. Thank you. Um, there are some some questions also about the stages of sleep. And do you do you think that it's it, how important is deep sleep and do, is that something we can modify the sort of stages of sleep and is that something we should be looking at that's a very good question and it's something that's quite difficult to to look at because one of the best ways to look at stages of sleep is with what we call polysomnography uh, where we bring people into the sleep lab um, and we keep an eye on them monitor them overnight now that's very difficult because by bringing people into the lab and doing that we're creating an artificial environment so while that's the gold standard method for measuring sleep um there's issues around people not sleeping in the natural way they would at home because they're in a laboratory um so that's very very difficult it's something that we want to look at and it's something that the colleagues in india are really interested in uh, looking at particularly for cardiovascular health um as as we get older but i'm not sure exactly how we might be able to do that in a very systematic and kind of large sample um the answer is that we don't really know i, I don't think we know whether you know there's a causal relationship between getting more or less deep sleep and and how your brain ages or at least i i don't think we know that yet yeah so it's a really interesting point about the sort of depth of phenotyping that you can do with the these kind of numbers that you need for these genetic studies and i guess one of the challenges of this field is disentangling whether sleep disturbance that precedes the development of dementia is part of the cause or whether we're seeing the early consequence of those diseases. Do you think that these these methods are a way that we can answer those questions? Um, or, or And do, where is the, where are the sort of, I guess in some ways you answered some of them, but what do you think of the next steps and how, how much is that question solved now? Very, well, it's a very good question and a very complicated one, Josh. Um, I think we are able to answer some of that with these methods um one of the issues is that the 
one of the largest samples that we have access to, you know, is the UK Biobank with the half a million individuals who, who, who've been amazing volunteers for all these years. Uh, however, the number of individuals with a dementia diagnosis is still relatively small. Um, so that makes it a little bit difficult to apply some of these mathematical models and, and methods. Um, but it, it is possible to look at that. And it's something that we want to look at and we want to do. Um, I guess the issue will be if we find that it's both a cause and a consequence, then what do we do in terms of clinical practice and therapeutics and, and so on? Um, because while sleep is a modifiable behavior, um, we can't modify the brains of individuals who have a diagnosis of, of Alzheimer's disease. So something to, to think about and, uh, and, and very, very complex Um but potentially as things advance and, and we become a bit more savvy with these methods, uh, we'll, we'll be able to do. Nice answer. Um, I, there's some questions about sleeping on the same schedule and waking up and going to sleep roughly the same every time every day. How important do you think that is amongst, amongst all yeah. of these different features we can modify? Yes, important. Yeah, so we would, we would talk about having good sleep hygiene um, and that is part a very very big part of having good sleep hygiene so in practice of course like I said a lot of us you know lie in at the weekend make up lost sleep time in the week if we've been out or we've been away or we've got jet lag or god knows what we've got going on or shift work etc um, but it is if you can if you are somebody who can go to bed go to sleep at roughly the same time every night wake up the same time every night and do that seven days a week that is the best sleep hygiene you can have and that is the best for the brain as we get older and also for all preventing all the other nasty things that we talked about so absolutely yeah I think most of us can't but for sure it's it's very important and and do you think you can quantify the amount of impact that these changes have either either sleep hygiene or the napping do we do we have any marker of how much of a change that makes so um, from our napping study, we, we found that um, essentially the impact was equivalent to about, so between three to six years of aging of the brain. So it was, it was the, 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 the difference in cubic centimeters for the, for the whole size of the brain. So for people who were more likely to, to take that regular daytime nap, um, it may help preserve the size of the brain for another three to six years, roughly. Um, but this is, like I said, very, very new. I don't know for sleep hygiene, we would need to do that study. Um, we would need to get people who sleep really well, which is very, very difficult to find and track them um, and then do some really interesting causal modeling on that. Um, but I don't think we know the answer right now. Um. And uh, there's a question here about the shift work. Um, is there any evidence that this impacts your cognitive function regardless of the duration of a shift work? Or does it, does it, what do we know? Do we know how, if that makes, if, if the length of shift working is a factor here? I don't know, to be honest. Um, do you know? I, I don't, I, well, I think we have a bit, of, there are some studies which seem to, which, well, there's a number of studies which show it impacts cognition and a few of them seem to have, have looked at length. I don't think we've got great data on it at the moment. Um, and and I'm, I'm guessing with the UK Biobank and it doesn't give the 
I don't know if it gives the duration when you're looking at these things. I don't think so. I think we've got information on whether people are shift workers. Um, and there's been some interesting studies looking at the combination of genetics and environment and the impact, say, on, on risk of obesity. Um, but I don't know what they've done for sleep. And I, I don't think the data is fantastic on length. It's a very, very good question. Some, someone who might be concerned about, you know, whether you do a very, very long shift versus a shorter shift. It's a very, very good question and something to, to think about um, as we maybe design the next wave of, of some of these studies. I think we've probably got time for one or maybe two more questions. Um, that, um... There's a question here about watches that record the time the time you sleep, and they often show chunks where you're awake and chunks and short chunks of um, chunks where you're awake during periods of time where you're normally asleep, and how how you interpret that, and how people should be using these digital measures to factor into their total sleep time. Did you do you have any thoughts on that? That's a very good question. Um, I personally not analyze data. We haven't analyzed data like that from the smart watches. Um, so I'm not really sure. And I know that mine doesn't doesn't do that. I also probably wouldn't pay much attention to it because it make me potentially make me a bit anxious and stressed. Um, I know that the smartwatches are not amazing at measuring sleep accurately at the moment. They're the best we've got. And it's it's probably better than nothing, especially if you want to know how you're sleeping. Um, but I don't think that the data is amazingly accurate. So I'm not I'm not really sure, to be honest um do, is that something you know about well as, as you say there's there's problems with the smart watches there that they are generally um very good at working out if someone's awake because someone mm. someone moving is quite obvious to them but someone someone still in a sleep still still in awake can uh, appear like a sleep person to them so that there are problems with their ability to differentiate that they are probably to answer the question is a uh, question about uh, periods where it looks like they're awake they're probably relatively correct at those often um yeah. Um, and probably the last question here. Um, someone's asked, is sleep deprivation the largest cause of Alzheimer's disease? No. No. Uh, we know that it is not likely to be the biggest cause. Um, there are, so it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a very good question. Um, we, we know that Alzheimer's disease is caused by a whole host of, of things that are likely to be additive or, or cumulative over time. Um, and there are other things that have a bigger, a bigger impact, uh, like cardiovascular problems, um, you know, lot, lot, lots of other things um, that, that are not, not sleep. So sleep is very important. And we're here to persuade you that sleep is really important and to pay attention to it and not ignore it. Uh, but no, absolutely not. No. I think that's potentially a nice question to finish on. Um, so thank you, Dr. Garfield, very much for your time. And thank you to the audience for joining us today for this uh, lunch hour lecture. Um, just to mention, there will be another lunch hour lecture taking place in January. And more information can be found on X, formerly Twitter, or using at UCL events and the UCL lunch hour lecture website. Thank you very much. Thank you.